From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. From wildfires to snowpack, we take the pulse of climate and weather today with longtime Colorado meteorologist Mike Nelson. Then, some people who depend on opioids for relief from chronic pain say the crackdown on prescription drug abuse has led to unnecessary anguish. I realized that the anxiety wasn't because of the pain. It was my frustration and anxiety around the doctor and his inability or unwillingness to change my medications. Our series on pain continues. Later for Jim McKinney, home remains a dirt pit. And as he works to build a permanent place, he makes the best of it. A lot of people there, they're all about being off grid and how cool it is, but until you live it, it's pretty tough. We're all used to monthly subscriptions, monthly bills, monthly fees, and we know paying for things over time makes the total cost more manageable. It's one of the reasons why the majority of CPR donors give monthly, and it's also why many members are able to incrementally grow their gift, making small adjustments as their budget allows. Add a few dollars a month to your monthly contribution. Email your gift increase instructions to membership at CPR.org. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. March and April are typically some of the snowiest months in Colorado, and yet here we are in early spring seeing wildfires. The NCAR fire ignited in Boulder County over the weekend, a community still reeling from the Marshall Fire. On Monday, a blaze near Estes Park led to evacuations. Let's get a grip on these conditions with Mike Nelson, chief meteorologist at Denver 7. He joins us regularly to discuss weather, climate, and climate change. Certainly wind has helped feed these fires, but I asked him about the moisture picture. Well, you know, we've been doing great. Uh, Ironically, ever since the Marshall Fire, it started to snow, and it's been snowing about once a week ever since that time. And we've pretty much uh, caught up, if not exceeded, our annual snowfall numbers to date in the Denver-Boulder area. But uh, just last week, had a series of days that were windy and warmer, and it doesn't take long for those grasses to dry out. So I was a little surprised that we had a fire of that magnitude after such a a wet period, but it's not out of the question. And uh, obviously just a nightmare for the people that live up there to relive this that quickly and have all of that smoke and fire and evacuations very close to the same area. Okay, this is uh, a real layman's question, but is it Maybe a function of the fact that the ground isn't just soaked enough? Like, it's nice to have some snow once a week, maybe, but uh, are we dealing with something drier, deeper down? I don't know. We have had the the drought conditions, which have gotten better across the state, but we still are in moderate drought along the front range. So remember, when it does snow, that typically snows fluffy stuff. And so uh, if you melt down 10 inches of snow, that's about one inch of water, which is a good amount of moisture that comes in, but it's not like a two or three inch rainfall that we might get with a really juicy storm that'll come up, say, in May, where it'll just dump rain for a whole day. Hmm. You know what that reminds me of is when you buy 30 pounds of spinach and it cooks down to a thimble. <laughs> the snow, <There> you go. <laughs> the snow is kind of like that with moisture. Uh, Southern Colorado, meanwhile, also dealing with dry conditions and red flag warnings, fire danger. 
Uh, but this week is bringing both rain and snow. Uh, think that'll make a dent? It'll help. Uh, the storm that's coming in is uh, going to produce uh, pretty good snows for the mountains as it comes through. It's a fairly moist Pacific storm, but it's also going to be a fairly fast mover. So a storm like that will drop 6 to 12 inches of snow in the mountains. But in advance of a storm, as it crosses the Great Basin to the west of Colorado and then moves into Colorado, in advance of it, you get the gusty south winds. Mm. And that is what is prompting the dry conditions on the eastern plains. So kind of call it a draw. In advance of the storm, you get the fire danger, and then it goes by and you'll get some moisture coming in. Now, as we get deeper into spring, April and May, typically that's when we get the really slow moving low pressure systems that'll kind of set up over southeast Colorado and just swirl moisture in from the Gulf of Mexico all the way across the Great Plains and swing it in across the plains uh, of Colorado. And that's when we'll sometimes get one to three inches of rain uh, out of a good spring storm. So those aren't quite there yet, but we're within just a few weeks of them. Okay, lots to unpack there. I'm fascinated by the meteorological tension that you describe, the dry period that immediately precedes a dowsing. Do you think, uh, for spring in general, that those wetter storms are on the horizon? I have good news and bad news. In the short term, we're talking the uh, seven to 10 day outlook. We are looking at a fairly good uh, set up for low pressure systems to come in off the West Coast and bring some moisture to Colorado. Unfortunately, just looking at the Climate Prediction Center longer range forecasts for April into early May and for most of the late spring into early summer, and that's warmer and drier across Colorado. And so any of these storms that come in, we'll hope we get as much out of them as we can because the longer range outlook is not quite as rosy. Why? Any any big things going on climatologically? or? Well, uh, in long-range forecasts, some of the tougher ones are 30 to 90 days because you're kind of on the cusp of weather and climate. Remember, we've talked in the past that climate is what you expect. In May, you're going to get warmer temperatures, but you still get snow. Don't plant your garden before Mother's Day, etc. But weather is what you get. And I'm kind of hoping as we get a little deeper into this that uh, perhaps those forecasts will be changing a little bit and we'll get a, a, a wetter spring. We are coming out of a La Nina weather pattern, and that is cooler temperatures in the ocean surface in the Pacific, which tends to drive the storm track, the jet stream, if you will, uh, across North America from British Columbia, northwesterly winds coming into Colorado and then swinging out across the eastern part of the country. That's a little drier pattern for us. But as that fades, and there's even some hint that we might get into an El Nino pattern spring into summer, that would drive more of a, a wetter pattern that would come in from the southwest. We'll see. Uh, as I mentioned, that 30 to 90 day forecast, I think, is, is one of the trickier ones to do. Mm. I do hear your inherent hope, Mike Nelson. <laughs> How's Colorado's snowpack right now, which, you know, is its largest reservoir? We are doing okay. We're just slightly now below where we should be on average. I was just checking the latest data. And so on the line, if you're looking at the graph, we are at 92% of the median of snowpack. Uh, it's kind of bounced up and down around the mean, the median, if you will, during the winter months. We started way below, obviously, in December 
because we hadn't had any snow until the end of December and mm-hmm. then bounced up above where we needed to be in January and then kind of went back lower, just right on the edge of being where we should be, but slightly drier. So uh, we're, we're pretty good. Do you have a lawn, Mike Nelson, and do you take long showers? I'm going to tell you, I'll, I'll just, I'll go first. We do have a lawn. It's small. We have a very smart sprinkler system, and I am prone to taking long showers, and I feel bad about it. What about you? (laughs) Well, we did replace our backyard with uh, artificial turf just last summer, Uh, so that is easing up on our water, and we just redid our front with less grass. We'd love to do no grass in the front, but there are um, covenants in the neighborhood that require that you have bluegrass, and we're, we're working to see if we can change it. One of the things I've really wondered, and I'm looking at a lot of the development that's going on uh, out in Aurora, heading up toward DIA, is when they're uh, digging all of the uh, trenches to put in all the pipes and the plumbing into these new neighborhoods, would it really be that much more to, say, put in a, a, a gray water irrigation system for every home. I get it that we can't dig up neighborhoods that are established, but when you're building a new one, that would sure seem like a long-term good idea. I noticed you avoided my shower question. Am I I letting it lie? What am I doing? (laughs) No, I I try and take fairly brief showers, but (laughs) yeah, we should all be more virtuous on that for sure. Thanks, Mike. Nice to talk to you again. Absolutely. My pleasure. Mike Nelson, chief meteorologist at Denver 7. He speaks with us regularly about weather, climate, and climate change. When we come back, the crackdown on opioids has put some people in chronic pain at odds with their doctor. Our series On Pain continues. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. And the winner is music blocks. Congratulations to the hosts and producers of CPR's podcast, Music Blocks, winners of the first Ambie Award for Best Podcast for Kids. Teachers, parents, listeners of all ages, welcome to Music Blocks, a podcast about the building blocks that make up your favorite sounds, whatever you love to listen to. Find Music Blocks everywhere you get your podcasts. Our series On Pain captures the stories of Coloradans who experience chronic pain and how they find relief. Today, people who have found it in opioids. They say the national crackdown has, in some cases, hurt those who legitimately need the painkillers. Larry Rowland wrote in to tell us about managing his chronic back pain. He's 75, lives in Denver, and takes Percocet each day. But he's always on the lookout for alternatives. And Kate Nicholson runs the National Pain Advocacy Center, which is based in Colorado. She was part of a working group that advised the Centers for Disease Control on revisions to the prescribing guidelines for opioids. They spoke with my colleague, Andrea Dukakis. Larry, you have chronic back pain. In your email to us, you wrote about your scoliosis. You have herniated discs. And in the last two years, you say the pain in your mid-back area has gotten worse. How does that pain affect your everyday life? Well, I've been at this for about 11 years, taking Percocet. And most of that time, up until maybe a year and a half ago, I was doing fine with the dosage the doctors had me on. 
to manage the pain. And I've always considered management as a part of my objective, not elimination of the pain, managing it so that I could function. And about a year and a half ago, it started getting worse. And when I started seeing my doctor about it, and I had a new doctor at the time, he resisted giving me any additional medication, but my medication had gone up maybe only a half a pill a day, but he resisted significantly. And that began to really impinge on my daily activities. I found myself having to lay down after breakfast for a half an hour to 45 minutes. I had to lay down for an hour in the middle of the afternoon. Up until that time, my wife and I had been actively walking. We did a lot of walking after the COVID pandemic started and we weren't able to do as much walking. So that's really the main impact. You've said you'd rather not be on opioids uh, if you could find relief without them. What other things have you tried? Well, this whole episode led me to ultimately find a different doctor. The message that I got from my doctor was that he was not going to resolve anything. And I ultimately got a different doctor. I also talked to a doctor that I've talked to for years having to do with my back. She's in the neurosurgery area, but she's not a surgeon. And she began working with me to look for reasons why the pain had increased in the mid-back area. She did some x-rays, couldn't find any real reason, the evidence that the scoliosis had gotten worse, but she kept working with me and ultimately referred me to a, a woman who was a physical therapist who specialized in scoliosis. Prior to this, I had also tried acupuncture and chiropractors. And chiropractors gave me some relief. The acupuncture did not. I was getting massage on a regular basis. That gave relief for about a day or so, but not long term. And so I've tried a number of different things leading up to this last episode. And they helped, uh, but they didn't give you the kind of relief Percocet did. We all know that you know, in the last 10 years, the number of people abusing opioids skyrocketed. And we also know that it's resulted in this crackdown on doctors prescribing those painkillers. I wonder if it was ever, in a way, humiliating to have to appeal or convince doctors that you really needed to have the Percocet to have this decent quality of life. It was somewhat, it was, I guess, not humiliating. I wouldn't use that word, but it was frustrating. With a chronic pain like this, there's a level of anxiety that comes with it. Will I be able to function today? Will I be able to get through the day without additional opioids? How do I manage it to keep from taking too much? And I also saw a uh, psychologist. I talked to a psychologist during this period of time. And in those conversations, I realized that the anxiety wasn't because of the pain. It was my frustration and anxiety around the doctor and his inability or unwillingness to change my medications. And there is a level of anxiety that comes along with just having chronic pain, having to deal with it every single day. 
Kate Nicholson, let's bring you in. As an attorney, you've worked as a longtime advocate for people with disabilities. At the same time, you had your own experience with chronic pain and disability for many years. What was life like for you during those years? Well, it was enormously challenging. Mine had started with a surgery mishap. I went from being a, you know, a very healthy, functional person to someone who was primarily bedridden. I could walk sometimes a couple feet with a mobility aid, but I couldn't sit at all, which meant that I couldn't use a wheelchair even to get around. And that went on for about 18 years. But I wanted to be able to continue to work. And during that time, I tried, I think, about 37 different rounds of treatment everything from injections to acupuncture to all many of the things that Larry talks about, as well as fairly invasive procedures like surgeries. And nothing really worked. And so eventually, my doctors basically said, you're going to have to try prescription opioids, because we don't have anything else to offer you. I had been reluctant to take them. And they really did help enable me to continue to work and function under fairly trying circumstances. Then you moved from Washington, D.C. to Colorado, and I understand that's when you began to see how efforts to curb opioid abuse affected you and others. Can you describe that? Sure. So I am I'm also someone who was fortunate. After about 18 years, uh, surgical techniques improved, and I was given the opportunity to rehabilitate and regain my ability to walk. And I moved to Colorado partly with the decision that working many hours at the Justice Department maybe wasn't the healthiest way to restore my, my well-being um, and sort of to focus on rehabilitation. And I went into the doctor one day, who was a relatively new doctor for me. This was in 2015. And she informed me that she was going to stop prescribing opioids for all of her patients effective immediately that she was going to transfer to doing just interventions. And I was really, frankly, kind of terrified by that because I knew of the risks of stopping prescribing suddenly. You mean the withdrawal? Yeah. You know, anyone who's taken opioids long term becomes physiologically dependent on them. That's different from addiction. Um, addiction actually is a compulsive use with negative life consequences, but it is still dangerous to stop them abruptly. And I had worked for 18 years to finally be able to regain my health. So it, it came at a critical juncture for me. What had happened is that a local clinician who was well-respected in the area had fallen sort of under DEA investigation, and that did send shockwaves through the local community. Now, for me, I was fortunate. I had a prior treatment team in, in Washington, D.C. They were able to give me a tapering plan so that I could safely get off the medication. And as I mentioned, I was already going down and doing better. So nothing um, bad came of it for me. But after the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued their guidance for prescribing opioids for chronic pain in 2016, I began to hear similar stories throughout the disability community of this happening to more and more people. And so I decided at that point that I needed to, to step into the conversation and began advocating on behalf of patients at that time. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but I want to talk about definitions, addiction, dependency. 
Larry, how would you describe your use of opioids, an addiction, a dependency? How do you see it? I clearly see it as a dependency, and I've had one of my other doctors in the past describe that to me because I was concerned. I try to manage my pain, and I don't seek or look for a high or anything like that. I'm not trying to uh, get anything other than pain relief. I'm trying to limit the amount I'm taking. And Kate, you talked about addiction, dependency. Can you elaborate a bit on your definition and how you see it? Yeah, I mean, these are my definitions. If you look at, you know, medical terminology, the diagnostic statistical memo, these are well-accepted definitions. There is a well-accepted difference between someone who requires an opioid to manage pain, whether from cancer or sickle cell disease, who uses it as prescribed to contribute to well-being and function, and someone who has addiction which is a compulsive use that's characterized by negative life consequences. Whereas someone who uses medications appropriately typically has the opposite, that's used on a regular schedule as prescribed with positive life consequences. Over the last few years, Kate, you've been advocating for people who, like Larry and like you for so long, have depended on opioids. At the same time, it's clear there's a reason there's been a crackdown. I wonder how you see the effect of prescription drugs like OxyContin on the rise of Americans generally who became addicted to opioids. Well, I certainly think that we prescribed opioids too liberally for a period of time. Uh, The problem is sort of a lack of nuance. There are some people with chronic pain who require them and who do well, and some people with acute pain as well, of course. But it wasn't a good one-size-fits-all solution for everyone. Neither is it a good one-size-fits-all solution to deny everyone these sort of medications which can be life-saving and have appropriate medical uses. So I certainly think that in complicated ways, liberal prescribing contributed to a rise in misuse. But a lot of the studies that we have really show that, to a large degree, the biggest problem with that was diversion of these medications, which is use by someone other than the person to whom they are prescribed. If you look at our national studies on drug use and health, most people who most recently misused a prescribed opioid didn't get it directly from a doctor. They got it from family or friends or bought it on the street. So it's certainly a problem, although I would say that the rates of opioid use disorder have been pretty steady. And since we stopped liberally prescribing, uh, opioid prescribing dropped precipitously starting in 2012. We are now at levels where we were in 1993. If you just look at per capita gross opioid prescribing, And since that time in the last decade, overdose deaths have escalated to tragic proportions, not primarily related to prescribed opioids, but rather to a tainted and poisonous street supply of fentanyl, carfentanil, and stimulants. Right. Lots of overdose deaths due to fentanyl. You were part of a CDC working group pushing for changes to the 2016 National Guidelines on Prescribing Opioids. Where are those potential changes now? So um, the CDC recently published 
its update on February 10th. And uh, I would agree that it has a more humane perspective. It makes very clear that all of its recommendations need to be applied in an individualized way because pain is not a monolith. You know, it varies considerably depending on your underlying condition, the type of pain, the severity of pain. So it allows providers more flexibility in interpreting the guidelines. It also makes very clear that it realizes that patients suffered considerable harm because of misapplication of its earlier guideline. And it sort of very strongly states that policymakers should not apply its guidance strictly. And all of those are wonderful changes. It also, in this draft, and this is just a draft proposal, the update is open for comments, it also removed the two provisions from its high-level recommendations that caused the most harm, one related to dosage and one related to sort of how many days of medication you can get. So it certainly takes steps to undo the harm. The problem is there's sort of a gap in authority and accountability because what happened last time is that policymakers picked up aspects of the guideline and made them mandatory payers, pharmacy benefit plans, healthcare systems, states, and undoing that is going to be a much bigger issue. How are doctors reacting to this debate? Are they less reluctant to prescribing opioids now if they have the freedom to do that and if they see a person who they think might benefit? I think it's too early to tell. Generally speaking, I think there's been a cultural shift away from prescribing and whether physicians will feel freer where they think a patient genuinely needs the medication to prescribe is an open question. I continue to receive dozens of unsolicited phone calls and emails every day from people who've been dropped in care, cut off of their medication. So I think Time will tell, and we need to see, first of all, what the CDC actually publishes in its final guideline. Uh, Once they finalize it, you know, what they choose to communicate to healthcare providers in their training modules, to healthcare systems, to payers is really going to determine how effectively we can work to achieve this balance, which I think we all want. Uh, a sort of Goldilocks solution in which the people who actually require these medications have access to them and people who may benefit from treatments that may be less risky for them um, are given those other options. Larry, in your email to us, you wrote, each of us who experience chronic pain has their own set of circumstances that need to be considered. What would you tell doctors about how to help patients like you manage pain? I guess, first of all, I would suggest that doctors get to know their patients better. Uh, We give a lot of talk to holistic medicine, but we've created silos of experts and they sort of talk to one another, but don't. And they don't form necessarily a trusting relationship with their patient so that they can really understand the patient's needs and why they need it and that sort of thing. They tend to prescribe things based on the patient's chart or their patient's history instead of really looking at the individual and understanding them. And what I'm encouraged to hear is that there's a more compassionate thing coming along in the future because the the fact is that each patient is different. 
they use the medications differently. Some are really trying to get off. I took a pain class, pain management class, and I count my lucky stars that I'm not experiencing the level of pain that many of the people in that class had. But their uh, two common themes came out was that their doctor said, or at least their interpretation was the doctor said, well, it's in your head, or we've got to get you off this medication, or we're afraid that you're taking too much. So I, I think doctors just need to understand their patient better, and they do need to consider the unique circumstances of a patient's needs. Kate, what do you think of what Larry just said in terms of that doctor-patient relationship and where it should be and where it is right now in many cases? Sure. I I think Larry raised a really important point, which is that distrust has sort of been injected into the doctor-patient relationship, partly because of this dramatic pendulum swing we've seen with opioid prescribing and the level of oversight that doctors are now subjected to. Many doctors didn't feel like they could prescribe or without subjecting themselves to significant risks. I'm not sure it's that doctors are particularly um, lacking in compassion. I, I do think the subjective nature of pain makes it challenging to treat and opens the door for all kinds of biases because at least initially when you're reporting your pain, there's no immediate way to test where that pain is coming from or measure it in an objective way. And that subjectivity can open the door to bias and problems. But the distrust, I think, largely comes in because of oversight. Kate, thanks so much. Sure, my pleasure. Larry, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Oh, you're welcome. Larry Rowland of Denver takes Percocet to manage chronic back pain. Kate Nicholson had chronic pain for 20 years until she found relief. Last year, she started the National Pain Advocacy Center. They spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis as part of our series on pain. And Colorado Matters continues shortly with a man who's trying to build a home so he can get out of the hole, literally. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. It's a clear blue semi-precious stone reminiscent of the seawater for which it's named. Aquamarine has long been associated with the sea. The Greeks and Romans believed it has the power to calm waves and keep sailors safe. Pliny the Elder said the gem seemed to have come from a mermaid's treasure chest. Yet America's biggest source of aquamarine is nowhere near the ocean. Mount Entero, the 10th highest peak in Colorado, has a rich gem field near the summit, popular with rock hounds. One discovered the biggest aquamarine ever found in North America, a specimen measuring about two feet by three. The March birthstone has also been found at Mounts White, Baldwin, and Princeton. And in 1971, aquamarine became the official state gem of Colorado. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Coble & Company. The story now of a man in central Colorado's Park County. We first shared what Jim McKinney's going through as part of a series on housing instability last October. McKinney lives in a dirt pit, one he dug into a hillside himself because he can't afford to build a traditional home on his rural property near the small town of Hartzell. His experience resonated with a lot of you, 
And a listener wrote in asking for an update, how he fared after another high mountain winter. CPR's Dan Boyce has this update. Hi, Dan. Hey, Ryan. Remind us just a bit more about Jim McKinney. All right. Uh, He's a guy in his late 50s, recovering alcoholic. He spent years living homeless on Denver City streets at one point. He's now limited by severe back injuries, and he basically lives on about 800 bucks a month in disability payments from the federal government. And so a a couple years back, he used his life savings and then helped from his folks to buy a five-acre plot of land. The land cost him less than $14,000 for the property, but there are no services. There's there's no water. There's no sewer at this place. It's totally off-grid, and it is far away from any paved roads. And presumably there are the taxes as well. So he uses all his money to buy the land and describe this home he's made, or I guess dug for himself. Yeah, like you said, he dug a pit straight into a hill that's on his land. At the front end of that pit then, he stacked up a couple walls of aspen trees he cut down on the land. And so imagine, Ryan, if you're looking down on it, the walls are oriented uh, sort of like a, a pizza slice shape. And then so on those walls, he put in some windows in them and then a door. He built some counters and he he has a sink and a big cast iron wood burning stove in the center of it. And then he just covered the top of it all, pit and everything with just blankets and tarps that he holds up by sticks. And he calls the place his hobbit house. And I'd say it's about the size of a small studio apartment in Denver. In the past few weeks, Dan, you went back to the hobbit house that i did you want black tea or green tea uh green would be great thank you yeah luckily i have full solar so i have plenty of power last time we were here it was the fall it was pretty pleasant and today it's 27 degrees out there right now feels pretty nice how has the winter been overall I mean, it's tough. It's even though it's been a really mild winter, we haven't had that much snow. But you know, the short days and the cold—I mean, that gets to you. It's not that easy. You know, a lot of people—they're—they're they're all about being off-grid and all this stuff and how cool it is. But until you live it, it's—it's it's pretty tough. Tell me about the coldest period so far and what that was like this year. <laughs> It, it, it hit 30 below out here about two weeks ago, and it's freaking cold, man. I mean, everything is frozen to the ground. You, you, you don't know what frozen is until you live up here, and it doesn't thaw out. Luckily, that's why I built the Hobbit house the way I did with the windows pointing south like this, is so I get that sun in, and plus it's underground, so I'm below frost line. But a lot of these people out here that are in trailers or whatever, Oh my God, they're freezing. Talk about how you manage heat here within this place that isn't as well insulated as you'd want it to be. How do you manage the heat in here? I I have that huge stove, so. There's only been the dog dishes right down here. Yesterday and the day before was the only time that that dog dish had frozen. But that's only because it's out here. 
Back there, where you're below grade, it never gets below 40 degrees. Survivable, though. Oh, yeah, it's not freezing. As long as you're cuddled up, I mean, I got my dog and my cat, you know. The, I mean, I don't know it's that cold until I get out of bed. But, yeah, if I don't have sun, I mean, there's been a few days like that where, you know, it's below zero. And if it's cloudy, then I got to burn wood all day long to stay warm. And it's a constant battle. And that's why I don't like burning it all the time because then you got to, you create the dust and the smoke in the house. And I don't get a very good draw because my stovepipe is not that long. It's not up to code, you know, it's all temporary. So it, yeah, keep it warm. And that's what people out here deal with, constantly staying warm. As uh, custom built as your place is, out of materials largely that you found on the property and then whatever you could scrounge up on the internet, often for free, you still do have many of these modern amenities that we take for granted here in the place. My solar system is actually one of my pride and joys. I, I do have a, a good solar system, so I have a dish with internet so i get all the news and you've got your radio often set to public radio from what i remember yeah um you've got a microwave right here yeah i can make coffee in the coffee pot i've i have full power i still have to watch it because when you're on solar it's not like being on the grid you can't just you know run everything all the time i really do have it pretty good in here compared to other people that are out there in the flats living in a trailer you know, a lot of these people out here, they're people that used to live in town, that used to live in Hartzell and Fairplay. So I know this one woman, and they had been renting this house for like 10 years. And now all of a sudden this house is worth half a million dollars. And so the owners sell it, and now this person of that community, they get booted. And now they're out here in the sticks with me. And these are people that can't really handle it. You know, I mean, I can handle it. I love it out here, you know. I mean, You're I, used to this by now. It reflects sort of the way you grew up. You have the skill set, so to speak, to be able to hack it out here. But what you're talking about is people who, outside of their own decision-making, but perhaps they still have a job or don't have anywhere else to go, have ended up out here. Right, yeah. They work, in, they work at the Family Dollar in Fairplay, or they work at the restaurant. They don't have the money, but they've been a part of that community for you know, for years and years. And now all of a sudden that little piece of that community just gets booted out. Are there many people in Park County and environs who live like McKinney? Well, based on what I've seen, it's like McKinney says, there are a lot of people out there living in much worse conditions than he is. We're talking about totally uninsulated, small metal trailers just out in the open plains in one of the coldest and windiest corridors in the state of Colorado. And as for McKinney, he's not planning on staying in the Hobbit House forever either. Mm. So uh, we went outside right after our first conversation and right next to the Hobbit House, you can start to see the basic structure of the permanent home he's building day by day, piece by piece. Basically, the backside of the house is framed in, except for the the roof. So you did all of this yourself? Yeah, yeah. Maybe not at as rapid of a pace as you had hoped. When we spoke last fall, you were hoping to be actually living in here by now during the winter. 
why didn't that work out as planned? Uh, basically money. Yeah. In my budget, I've got a certain amount that I can spend each month on building materials. And yeah, it wasn't quite there. The, the beams and the substructure and the roof trusses, those things are like a hundred bucks a piece. So the last couple of months, the country has seen uh, greater inflation than in decades. And gas prices are setting new record highs. To what degree have you been feeling the inflation? Well, that's that really opens up a very interesting conversation because that's part of the reason I'm out here. That's part of the reason I'm off-grid. I go out in the woods over here, and I can knock down an aspen tree, and that's how I heat my house. I don't have to pay the man for my electricity, even though, yeah, the price of propane, I have to go fill up a propane tank. You know, I mean, the price of gas, that sucks because I do have to pay for gasoline, you know, in my car. But at the same time, I don't feel it like the people in the city do. And that's why I'm off grid. How about food prices and things like that? Have you noticed any noticeable, appreciable difference? Oh, yeah, there's that, too. But I'm kind of vegan. I, I quit eating meat a long time ago, so I don't have feeding myself. I'm not one of these people that has to have this amazing tasting meal, you know. I'm more into nutrition than the taste. And so I go to the store, and if avocados are $4 a piece, then I don't get avocados. And that's one thing that pisses me off because I love avocados. That's like my only source of fat. But I'll eat cabbage. If it's organic, I'll go ahead and I'll eat cabbage. But if you go to Fair Play, the market there, oh my God, they're so expensive. I, I love green olives. I was up at the store up there. They wanted like $8 for a jar of these. So I don't get them. I get a jar of pickles instead. But that's what sucks about it all is it's the little people like us here that are the ones that really get punished. The people with tons of money, they it's no big deal. They got to pay a couple extra bucks for a jar of olives. They don't care. They got plenty of money. But it's the simple people that live out here that are getting hit the hardest. And after we finished looking over his house construction, McKinney, he decided to head into Hartzell to buy some bundles of firewood. Ryan, luckily, he wasn't so hard up at that moment that he had to cut down more aspen trees from his property. Make sure it's as much wood in there as possible. Great. Thanks a lot. So anyone who's ever been through Hartzell knows it's basically a, a one-street kind of place. A handful of storefronts, if that many. McKinney, he buys some wood from the gas station, then turns around, walks over into the High Line Cafe and Saloon. Hopefully we'll, we'll see who's working. And he describes this creaky old bar as the place where he finds his community. I mean, heck, both the bartender and one of the patrons in here live off the grid, too. And these regulars describe the High Line as a place they go to relieve cabin fever, which is something McKinney really found himself dealing with at the beginning of the year as he was trying to recover after contracting COVID. I was afraid I was going to end up in the hospital, but luckily it didn't get into my lung, you know, like a lot of people get it. But man, I felt like crap and, and it, it wouldn't go away. I How mean, long do you think? Oh my God, it was like a month before I started getting back, you know, to normal. I mean, that, that stupid COVID about kicked my butt. When you, you were talking about how 
in the depths of the winter here at the beginning of the year, you yourself felt that cabin fever you talk about. Oh yeah, I think everybody up here does. That's why they come here, you know, to, to see people. I mean, the days get short and it's cold and, and you gotta get out, see people. And this is a great place for it. I mean, there's so many good people that hang out in here from the community. And I mean, it's almost like church, just coming here, have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. And I wonder if this is a place that people come to talk about those struggles and relate with each other on those things. Oh yeah, yeah, because there are people out here that don't have money and they're freezing cold and they gotta fill up a propane tank or something and this is the place to vent because everybody's just cool and everybody watches out for each other. What happens from here? How does the rest of your day look on a day like this? Well, I just go home as soon as the, as soon as the sun dips below the horizon, it, it freezes, it gets cold. So I gotta have a fire going and cook dinner and that's about it. I mean, it's only like 25 degrees out there. As soon as that sun dips below the horizon, it's zero. And so you got to have the fire going, you got to have the place warming up because otherwise you're cold. And if your body is cold, you're burning your energy trying to stay warm and it depresses you. And that's where a lot of the crap kicks in. So you got to stay warm. And that's a constant battle. Well, spring is upon us and uh, warmer days ahead. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Ryan. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce updating the story of Jim McKinney, a Park County man who lives off the grid near the town of Hartzell. Still to come, you've heard of guard dogs, but guard donkeys? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I look at him like a shooting star. Jim Belushi talks about his brother John and overcoming loss on a new episode of Back From Broken. When you see a shooting star, you go, oh! and then it's gone. It's like magic, right? I look at John as that shooting star. Listen to Back From Broken, a show about recovery, wherever you get your podcasts. Sponsored in part by the University of Colorado and Shoots Medical Campus. A Colorado rancher brought in some reinforcements to defend against wolves. Not guns, nor guard dogs. His cattle are protected by donkeys. He hopes they might even help wolves and people find harmony. CPR Sam Brash has the story. It's morning when Don Gittleson brings hay to feed his heifers. Most years, these animals would be spread out across a snow-dusted ranch near the Wyoming border. But right now, they're penned into just a few acres where they can be watched. It's been more than a month since the last attack. And that's mostly because we have people out in the cows all the time at night now. Gittleson has reason to worry. His ranch is near where a pair of wolves wandered into Colorado and had pups last year. The occasion marked the first known example of wolves breeding in the state since the 1940s, when hunters and trappers eradicated the species. But since then, the pack has started feeding on his cattle. Uh, The first happened um, in December, and then we had two in a row after that. 
and these won't be the last wolves coming into Colorado. Wildlife officials are finalizing a plan to bring more wolves into the state and make it a thriving safe haven for the species. All of this is making ranchers across the state nervous, uh, to say the least. And it means Gittleson's Ranch is a critical testing ground to minimize livestock losses. Since it's illegal to shoot wolves in Colorado, ranchers like Gittleson have to use non-lethal methods to scare them off, like night watches or electric fences. All of those things wolves are going to get used to, so it's going to have a shelf life. It's only going to last so long that they're going to get used to it, and then they're not going to be afraid of it. This is what got him thinking about guard animals. What I say is the animals need to work it out. They need to understand if they come in to where the cattle are, there's a very possibility that they could be killed or they could be injured. People offered guard dogs toward that end. He declined after hearing how much their food costs. Instead, he started pursuing what you might call a pretty wild-ass idea. Donkeys. More precisely, feral donkeys. Because they um, a little, little larger. I've probably seen predators before, or a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the domestic ones probably have not seen a predator before. He knew the federal government had too many wild burrows living on public land. He asked for some, but ran into bureaucratic hang-ups. Then he mentioned the idea to his local state wildlife officer. It took him a couple weeks to get it accomplished. I think probably about three weeks. Colorado Parks and Wildlife ended up delivering six wild burrows from Utah and Nevada. This is a video from their arrival. The animals unload from a trailer, stand around, eat hay. Three of them are now on guard in this pen with the heifers. And it doesn't seem like much has changed. They're just sitting there chilling with the cows eating. They just mind their own business. This is 13-year-old Easton Gittleson, Don Gittleson's grandson. He's here in boots and a jacket, helping feed the cattle over his spring break. Before the holiday, Gittleson really talked up these donkeys. I'm like, hey guys, guess what? I got these cool donkeys that are going to go ham on these wolves. But now that I see how they acted, I'm like on the fence about how they're going to act around wolves. Gittleson's a little disappointed the donkeys haven't acted out, even when dogs get into the pen. It's left him unsure they have what it takes to defend the cattle. But other wolf country ranchers say not to worry. Pound for pound, they're the toughest animal on earth. Chuck Becker is a northern Minnesota rancher who's employed guard donkeys on his property for decades. He hasn't seen them go after wolves, but he saw one get to a coyote. He caught that coyote and he was just going to play with it. So he already had that coyote crippled up by the time I found it to the point where it couldn't get away. Before he got donkeys, Becker says he lost livestock to timber wolves every year. Now it's more like every four to five years. Gittleson hopes to get similar results, but he's not counting on it. There isn't going to be a perfect solution, so hopefully people don't get too disappointed with their expectations of how this is going to work out. Gittleson actually expects more losses over the next few months, but says the donkeys are a long-term solution. That's why he bought a fertile male. If he can breed burrows and raise them alongside his cattle, he figures they'll be even more protective of the whole herd and even more effective against wolves. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our pack of producers. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. 
Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.